Praise the Lord. Again, we are so grateful that uh, the Boyd family is worshiping with us and has graciously allowed us to be a part of uh, um, of their ministry as they're allowing us allowing us to use them as part of ours. Um, this is a time in our service where we uh, uh, we open up our Bibles. We prepare our hearts for the message that God has laid upon our souls. And, you know, it's, it'd be one thing is if God was just giving me a message to preach, but I know the reality is, is that God has been speaking to each and every one of us all week long. And we all have a message in our heart that he wants to proclaim through us and with us. And so in light of that, I would encourage you to bow as we pray before we uh, open up the word of life. Father, we just love you so much. Lord, it's so humbling to stand in front of you and to dare to be able to preach your word. Father, I know that I am the least of your servants. And Father, I am in no way deserving of any of the forgiveness that you continually pour down upon me. Father, we're so grateful that you used me as long as, 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 as well as, as every other weak and cracked and broken vessel in this room. Father, we ask that you will bless us as we seek to be nourished from your table this morning. Lord, as we open up your word of life and we begin to look at the words you've laid down in it, in this fifth chapter in Daniel, Father, we ask that you will just allow our hearts to be pierced, that our consciousness, consciences will be, will be cut to the quick, and that, Father, we might truly fall upon your promises that if we will truly repent and turn back to you that you will send healing to your land Father we thank you for what you've done in the past in this community in Kenai and in this church Father we ask that you'll continue to move as the days, weeks and months progress that we might be able to see your hand moving and that we might be a partner to it Father, again, I ask you to push me aside, speak through me, and allow me to be your voice at this moment. We love you and we thank you. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So here we are in chapter 5, and we're now coming, we've got two more chapters um, in Daniel that were written in Aramaic, and um, this and the next, there's like one more chapter that's like, I hate to use the word normal, but is um, at least understandable uh, without, too much, uh, without too much parsing out, because it's mostly history. Those of you that haven't realized yet, Daniel is, is uh, 12 chapters, um, it's broken up into, well, 12 chapters? Well, anyway, Daniel is, uh, sorry, my brain is not working. Yes, 12 chapters. Uh, Daniel is broken up into two sections. The first um, six chapters is uh, narrative history for the most part, and the last six chapters are, uh, for the most part, um, prophecy that Daniel collected throughout his ministry. And so we're kind of in that spot right now where we're coming to the end of the narrative history, and we're coming to the end of, of, of Daniel's uh, direct um, influence on the thrones that uh, rule over the city of Babylon and moving into that time where it's going to get a little interesting um, in the next coming weeks as we start to look deeply into the visions and the dreams that Daniel had. Um, 
And But in light of all that, I want to encourage you guys, this week, if you're thinking about uh, sort of studying Daniel chapter 5, or going back and looking at it, or maybe even uh, replaying this sermon online a couple times as you begin to see what uh, what God is trying to say to you, um, and I would encourage you, maybe go back and watch it again, uh, because there's going to be some things that um, you're going to learn today, but you're also going to have an opportunity to see a little more clearly what's happening. One of the things that one of the commentators that I read this week um, in Crash the last couple weeks encouraged uh, the reader to do in conjunction to reading his book was to sit down and read through three different books in one single reading, um, a couple chapters each. And I'm going to go slow for you so you can write this down. But if this week, if you'll sit down and read through entirely in one sitting, it takes about 30 minutes or so, if you'll read through in one sitting Isaiah chapter, um, uh, chapter 13 and 14, Jeremiah chapters 50 through 51 and Revelation chapters 17 through 18. If you'll read all three of those in the order that I gave you um, and then go back and reread chapter 5 and maybe even a little bit of chapter 6, you'll begin to see that God had already been prophesying and planning and preparing this. Isaiah actually prophesied the doom of uh, Babylon a hundred years or more, over a hundred years before it actually happened. Um, Isaiah actually named uh, the king that was going to reign over it, Cyrus. Uh, and I thought that was kind of interesting, the incredible accuracy of God's word. Um, but I also find it interesting that God is using this particular context to sort of put a capstone on the discussion that he started in the last chapter, and really a discussion He's been he's been sort of a, a low key having throughout the entire uh, first section of this book. Um, and remember, the overall and overriding theme of the book of Daniel is that God is sovereign, God is in control, and mankind, no matter how powerful or lofty we think we are, is not. And so that's sort of the overriding uh, theme. Uh, but it comes to a question. You know, a lot of times people ask us, why do we study the book of Daniel? Why have we chosen the book of Daniel at this time? Well, I think it's obvious that the, the world is just not where we want it. Um, there's a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of uh, intrigue. There's a lot of frustrations. There's a lot of irritations. Um, there's a, a political and, and civil unrest. Um, the church body, not just ours, but Many are, are undergoing some, some radical shifts. I'm seeing um, many congregations, friends of mine that are pastoring in the lower 48, um, are struggling. I've had several phone calls this week from, from uh, pastors that are friends of mine that are, that are asking for specific prayer over, over things that in any other circumstance in life, in any other time in the history of our nation, probably wouldn't have amounted to a hill of beans, but because everything else is just pressing in on all these other sides, it's become sort of mountainous and difficult to overcome. And so... Um, if you ask me why uh, we need to, to study the book of Daniel, I say it's obvious that, that he's a, a man of his times preaching about a time when the, the, just his world was, was, was about to be disrupted, and we feel the same way. Now, that being said, there's also um, some other things why we study the book of Daniel. Um, the fact that the book of Daniel has continued to be and, and, and hold an important cultural um, uh, uh, impactfulness to our, our nation and to the world beyond is, is without a doubt. I mean, many of the phrases that we have uh, used over through the years that are part of the collective cultural consciousness of, 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 of mankind here in America um, is something that comes directly from the book of Daniel. I mean, we talked about the fiery furnace, you know, the idea 
that you're in the furnace. You're in the fiery furnace. You're in the grips of the fiery furnace. You're walking amongst the fire. Um, you know, you've been thrown into the fire yet again. You've been tried with fire. These are all parts of that particular story. And, and I guarantee you, you walk down the street in any city in the United States and you ask people about that fiery furnace or you about, about some of the things that, that we're going to talk about today, like, are your time is up? Um, you've been found weighed and wanting. Um, the handwriting on the wall. These are all phrases that were part of our cultural understanding. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, that's really simple. It means that we actually have a foothold in in, 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 in bringing the gospel out to people that need to hear it. Now, what I mean by that is this. You know, when, when your missionary is over in another country, especially in a country that doesn't have a lot of connectivity to Christianity, one of the things that our missionaries do is they look for what we call cultural bridges. It's a bridge that we can that, that has already been built by the culture at the time that we can sort of walk over and bring the gospel to them in a way they can understand. Um, there's numerous examples in foreign countries um, and in the, mis- in the ministry movements uh, throughout the ages that have been used. Now, that being said, we have this wonderful cultural bridge of just just using the phrase the handwriting on the wall or your time is up or you or you've been found weighed and wanting uh, these are these are wonderful cultural bridges that allow us to reach into a into a culture that for the most part has become godless and atheistic it allows us to be able to bring that gospel message into the lives of people that need to hear it, but don't really know that they need to hear it. And so this is kind of one of the reasons why I feel like studying Daniel, at least Daniel chapter 5, is of incredible importance. So now we're into this, and we're just going to read the first few verses, and then we're going to sort of dive into this a little bit. So Bel- uh, Belshazzar, not to be conf- con- confused with Daniel's uh, Babylonian name, which is Belteshazzar. Now we're looking at Belshazzar. The king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of, um, of the thousand. And when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, in order that the king and his nobles and his wives and the, um, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine, praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, wood, iron, and stone. And suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lamp lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand and did, that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began to knock together. So I'm going to stop there um, and just sort of break this down and, and sort of move ahead, okay? So we're now in like the third year of, I guess you could say, the reign of Belshazzar. We know the history of this. Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for a few years now. Um, and in fact, most people think that um, it's been about 30 years, give or take, since uh, the 
end of chapter 4. And so, like I said, Daniel has, has died. There's been an incredible amount of chaos in the palace over the last several years. We've, had, we've seen a succession of short-time rulers that were the sons of Nebuchadnezzar as they vied for power. Some lasted for a few months, some lasted for a couple years. And we're now into the reign of Nabonidus, who was the final one. He reigned for about 16 years. And this is sort of the end of all that turmoil. And it's also the end of that particular nation. Well, uh, Nabonidus, according to the historical documents, had a son. Uh, more than likely, Nabonidus, who was an administrator in the, in the courtroom, evidently married one of the daughters of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nabonidus had a son, which would have been the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And this man was Belshazzar. We know this in the historical record. It's proven. It's in tablets, uh, sitting in museums. We know this beyond, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And Belshazzar was placed on the throne as the co-regent in Babylon for this kingdom. Nabonidus, for his own reasons, he, he re didn't want to really be king. Uh, he spent a lot of his time in Arabia, and he never, hardly ever, came back to Babylon. In that case, you know, obviously Belshazzar was the one that was uh, there. He was given the authority and the power to be the co-regent in Babylon while his father was off doing what his father wanted to do. And at the time of this writing, this particular chapter, uh, Nabonidus had just suffered a major defeat at the hands of the Medes and Persians about three days before this feast began. And Belshazzar, who probably without a doubt knew that that defeat had happened, and he went ahead with his feast and festival anyway. And so that sort of brings us up to uh, where we are. Um, and we know that God is, is definitely moving ahead of this. But there's also some things that are happening um, behind the scenes. Things that we'll see when we get to chapter 8 in the book of Daniel, where Daniel has already prophesied himself of the fall of Cyrus. Um, I mean, the fall of, of Babylon. Uh, and so Daniel was already waiting for this to happen. By this time, Daniel was probably about 80 years old. He had more than likely retired from, from public ministry and sort of stepped away um, probably after the death of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Although we, we're not exactly sure when Daniel decided to step down. We just know that he was not involved in the original summons of the wise men uh, for a reason. And we pr we're pretty sure this because that he was somewhat in semi-retirement. Now, that being said, as I mentioned before, 150 years before um, Babylon uh, even was rising up, Isaiah in chapter 44 and 45 had already prophesied that this kingdom was going to end. And so we already knew, we already knew this was coming to, to a close. In fact, uh, Daniel had sort of alluded to this when he discussed this with, with uh, Nebuchadnezzar back in the first uh, couple chapters as he was dealing with some of the issues of pride that uh, seemed to keep recurring in the life of Nebuchadnezzar that was culminated in chapter 4 in the book of Daniel. So that's sort of the background as we're uh, coming into this and we're looking at this. There's some things that I think are important to note. I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to be able to do everything in this chapter because it is a lengthy chapter. We're looking at about uh, almost 30 verses and uh, there's a lot that's happening in here. We're going to try to unpack everything we can, but the goal here is to get the spiritual impact that we need to take away with us. Uh, but to start off with, you'll see that uh, Belshazzar, who was at the moment the king, he held a feast for the uh, nobles, which um, was very common in those days. More than likely, this was a uh, standard festival that was occurring, uh, probably a festival for their god Marduk. 
and you notice that he was holding it uh, for a thousand people, which was not uncommon in those days. A lot of times parties sometimes would last for days. There was one recorded party in the Persian Empire that lasted 180 days. That's a lot of time to just do nothing but party. I can't even begin to imagine the, the food bill that would have been racked up in that case. But here we see that um, there were a thousand of his nobles that were there. And the, and the Bible says in verse 1 that the king was drinking in the presence of his thousand. Now, in the Aramaic, the way it's uh, written there, it gives us the understanding that, that the king was participating in a very visual way. You say, well, of course that's the case. All kings and, and people of authority would party with their people. But the reality is that's not the case. Um, for the most part, the kings in the ancient Oriental world, which was um, in the Fertile Crescent, that's the area that we talk about um, when we're looking at that, that, that uh, Middle Eastern, uh, Near East, Oriental culture. The kings in those days did not party directly with their people because they were seen as semi-divine figures. They were, they were um, spokesmen for the gods, if you will. And a lot of times there would be very intricately carved and decorated screens that would be put up and erected in between the masses that were partying and the king himself. And he would have a small, very small group of people in that area. In this case, that wasn't happening. Uh, the Aramaic is pretty clear that uh, the king had foregone that and he was sort of making a stand and a statement and there's a, there's a, several reasons why this was happening obviously we mentioned that there was a um, there was a feast that was taking place uh, for Marduk and I, and there was also something else going on because the defeat that happened in Nabonidus just a few days before not more than a hundred miles away from the palace uh, it happened right then, and when the king Nebuchadnezzar went down, well, he didn't die, he did escape, but that would mean that Belshazzar was the, the only guy left, right? He was the last of a, of a, of a dual co-regency standing. So in some ways, this was probably sort of a coronation celebration as he took part in this. And there was probably sort of a, a level of, of, of a morale boost that he was trying to accomplish with his people. This, the, the, by all accounts from historians of the day, this, this capital of Babylon was unassailable. It was unbeatable. It was an immovable fortress that could not be taken. They had the, the river Euphrates was going right through the middle of the, um, uh, the city. So they had all the water they could drink. They had um, f enough food stored up for at least two or three years that they could eat and feast well. By holding a feast like this, he was basically telling the Medes and Persians and their army, do what you want to, but you're not going to change us. We are immovable. We're here to stay, and you need to deal with it. And eventually, we'll take care of you when we get tired of partying. So that's kind of uh, the message that that Bel uh, Belteshazzar, or Belshazzar, was... Um, was bringing out in this um, in this endeavor. Now, all this was happening, and Belshazzar, according to verse two, decides to bring out the um, uh, the cups and the dishes and the sacred artifacts that were found in the temple. Now, we're only given this snapshot of what was happening to the holy articles that came from the temple of Yahweh, but more than likely. Uh, 
Belshazzar was not only pulling God's holy items out of uh, the museum that Nebuchadnezzar had put them in, but probably all the other artifacts from the other kingdoms that had been captured in a way to send a message to his nobles that there is no God greater than the gods of the Babylonians. And so that was sort of a, um, a particular affront that Belshazzar was trying to say to the world and at the same time making a name for himself. He was trying to put him into a, himself into a position of power amongst his nobles so that there's that projected um, uh, uh, strength that was being put forth. Now in verse 3 you say they did, they, they actually brought them forth. In verse 4 they began to drink out of them and suddenly very suddenly the hand emerged and the writing on the wall commenced. You know this is really an amazing thing a lot of people have thought that, well, maybe this was just a fever-induced drunken dream or vision that the king only had, which was not the case, uh, because obviously uh, other people saw it. And then a little bit later when he calls in the wise men and the, the astrologers, they all saw the writing on the wall. And so it was clear this was not some drunken vision, that this was an actual hand that was writing on the wall. Uh, the Bible says that the, ki the king's face grew pale. His thoughts were alarmed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began to knock together. You know, this is, this is, this is there's a lot of idioms here. Um, basically, it scared the stuffing out of him. Um, there, the, the phrase there, his, his joints uh, went slack, is, 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 is just a... It's a idiom that means literally that uh, he needed to change his 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 pants. Um, things just did not go well for the king. He was come face to face with something that was incredibly supernatural. Now, a lot of us, a lot of a lot of you guys may be saying, "Well." Um, because in the light of this story as we read on, it seems like he doesn't really know who Daniel is, which I think is not true. And it sort of indicates that he'd forgotten what the Lord had done through and to the Nebuchadnezzar, which I think you'll see uh, as we go through this that was not the case as well. Belshazzar knew exactly what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar and chose instead to flout it anyway and say that he was more powerful than the, than the, the God of the universe. Now, that being said... Um, we're now rolling into verse 7 and this is when the king after he recovers himself a little bit he calls in for all of his wise men he wants his wise men there so that he can um, get a sense of what was actually being what was actually being said to him in this obvious divine interaction and he laid out a challenge he said if anybody can tell me what this is in verse 7 um, can read the inscription and explain the interpretations they will be clothed with purple which means they will be raised to, to royalty they will be given a necklace of gold, which was a position of authority and power. The necklace represented a badge of office um, around his neck, and he would have the authority of a third ruler in the kingdom, which is the greatest about authority that this second ruler in the kingdom can give. Also gives more historical credence to the idea that there were three rulers. In fact, this particular phrase that's being used is a very specific phrase that in the, it's an Akkadian loan word, um, it's Tolton, Tolton, and it literally, re it literally means triumvirate, um, third ruler, third in command. And it was used specifically for this um, 
And, and anybody else that was writing this, even 100 years later or 200 years later, if it wasn't Daniel writing, it would never have used that word. So that particular word also gives us an incredible um, authority that the accuracy of the word that was written down by an eyewitness that could have only been Daniel. And so uh, the king's wise men came. They were, they were flummoxed, they, as always. It's like these wise men weren't very wise. Um, they seemed like every time that they were brought into the king's presence that we see, they dropped the ball. Now, I don't know if that happens every time, but just every time that we've seen them in, in action, they're like the, uh, uh, the three stooges bumbling around trying to figure out what, what's going on in the world. Um, and we see that's when verse 10 happens. Now, the, word, uh, the scripture says the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. Basically, the queen was not in the presence. Um, so because the queen wasn't there, we were already told that the king's wives were there. This individual could only be one of two people. It could either be directly Belshazzar Zar's mother, the wife of Nabonidus, or more likely it was uh, the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, his grandmother, that would have been in this uh, thing. And, and either way, those either one of those women evidently had enough character, enough godliness to understand from their own living through the, the time of, of Nebuchadnezzar and what he went through, that being a part of this drunken revelry that was uh, against the God of heaven was not something they want to be a part of. But they heard the commotion. She came in and she basically said, what's going on? Why is your face pale? We see that in verse 10. Verse 11 says, well, it just so happens there's a man in the kingdom who who, ha who has the spirit of the holy gods. Again, this is an Aramaic term. It's, it's translated in, in the uh, Aramaic phrase, in the plural. And so when we get it, it's been, of course, translated from Aramaic into Hebrew and then into Greek and then into English. And so we're getting this uh, really like four hand and it's understandable that the translators would put it down gods and the lower and the little g but in reality what the queen was saying was in the spirit of the holy god um, because we know the word elohim which was used in aramaic along with in hebrew and then translated into greek um, literally means god and it's a plural form of the of god of the word gods but we know that only means god himself um, and it's used all throughout the old testament and it says in the days of your father Again, he's referring to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, illumination, insight, wisdom, like the wisdom that are only found in the gods. Um, and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, uh, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because of an extraordinary spirit of knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems um, were found in, in this particular fellow, Daniel, whom the king had named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will, be, he will declare the interpretation of this. So that was a pretty lengthy title. Man, I can imagine that business card. Obviously, the king is, um, is not thinking about Daniel, but to say he's unaware of him is, is probably... Um, inaccurate. It's more than likely that the king was still fearful of everything that was happening, was hearkening back to the time of Nebuchadnezzar, was feeling like that this judgment was about to be pronounced upon him or the nation and things were going to go horribly wrong. He was hoping for a different answer. He was hoping that um, that a simpler answer might come forth. But either way, uh, the queen said, Daniel's your guy. You need to bring him here. So Daniel was brought in. You see in verse 13, he asked him, Are you that Daniel? 
Wow, what a question that was being asked of Daniel at a time when the country was about to be destroyed. And in many ways, Daniel was probably looking after 80 some odd years of his life thinking, this is it, I'm done. My life is about to be over, right? So he's in that mode already thinking that he's about, that, 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 that everything he knows is done. He's, he's sitting back. He's like a lot of folks that reach that age, basically saying, you know, whatever happens, happens. It's in God's hands. I'm not worried about it. Now, he wasn't fearful of death because he knew where he was going when he passed out of this plane and into the next. But he was still coming in front of this king with a, with a type of boldness. And he, he comes into this presence with his king and, and he, hear, he hears that question, are you that? Daniel, right? Are you the one that comes from the exiles of Judah? Are you the one that my father brought out? Now we keep using this word my father and this has given a lot of people frustration. Like, like who is this guy Bel, uh, uh, Belshazzar that, uh, that would be able to um, or sorry, Belteshazzar that uh, my brain is just not working. It is Belshazzar. So is this the Belshazzar that is um, uh, that is dealing with uh, the king, and is he actually a son? Is he a grandson? Is he how is he connected? You have to know that in Aramaic there is no word for grandfather or grandson. It's simply father and son. And so when they were putting these phrases in there, they were talking about fathers in the sense of my forefathers, not my father as in the man that helped contributed to my birth. But in some ways, obviously Nebuchadnezzar did did because this was his grandson. So that being said, you know this. Are you that Daniel? Are you the one? I hear that you've got this wisdom. You've got all the things you need to be able to give me the answer for what I'm looking for. And he says, if you just tell me, I'm going to give you all of these, all of these prizes, right? Because he wants to, 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 he wants to give these things out. Now, I believe that the reason why he's doing this, as I mentioned before, is that he really wants to get some sort of favor with God. He wants to, um, he wants to, to, uh, to skip this, if I will, uh, skip this judgment that's going to fall upon him. In verse 17, it says, And Daniel answered him and said, You can keep your gifts and give the rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. So he's basically just laying it out. And it's this, the, the amount of um, of pride, not really pride, um, I would say the amount of confidence that Daniel was able to come in front of this king at this moment in the height of his power, in the, in the moment when he's probably the most vulnerable, and make these kinds of declaratory statements that would have basically said, your gifts are not good enough for me. They're not worthy of my God, and I don't want them. But he's also making another statement. He's saying, basically, you, you can't God, God's will cannot be bought or changed by your gold. There's nothing you can do that will change it. You know, and that's something that I think we can take to heart as Christians. You see, a lot of times we will feel like we can bargain with God. We can take away the consequences of actions or we can move through circumstances that, that we shouldn't be in simply because we contribute a lot of money to the church or we've done a lot of things for God or we've, we've done this or done that. We've been here, we've been that. It's resting our laurels, if you will, in the wrong places. Rather than resting in the, in the safety of the spirit and power of Jesus Christ, we will rest in some of the things that we've done, basically our own hands. And this is what, in many ways, this king was doing with Daniel. And so you see in verse uh, 18, Daniel begins the, um, the interpretation. He says, O king, the Most High God granted sovereignty, 
grandeur, glory, and majesty to your father, Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to that. Listen to that. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the people, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished killed, whomever he wished spared alive, and whomever he wished elevated, whomever he wished humbled, he could do whatever he wanted, Daniel was saying. He was pretty powerful. And then it goes on to say, his heart was lifted up, and you know what happened. He was driven away from mankind, verse 21, until he finally recognized the Most High God. Here it is, verse 22. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. We know from the ancient inscriptions that we found from the archaeological investigations that Belshazzar was well aware of what happened. He would have been probably around 25 or so, maybe 30, at the death of Nebuchadnezzar. According to the records that we have, the days directly after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, he was listed as one of the high advisors and government officials that would have been working in the government. More than likely, he was well aware of everything that happened. Daniel knew this and said it as such to him. He says in verse 22, you knew all of this. You knew everything that had happened to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, but yet you chose instead to not follow God's commandments. You chose not to humble your heart, even though you saw your own father, your own grandfather, humbled in such a way and thinking that you might escape that judgment. You've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. You And they have brought the vessels of his house out. Look what it says at the end of verse 23. But God, but the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and your ways, you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. I tell you, man, this is a pretty powerful statement. Daniel was not holding back. Even, I mean, it's interesting with the, the tenderness we saw in the last chapter where Daniel was in front of Belshazzar and he said, I wish this was for someone else, but here's what's going to happen. He didn't say that. He just laid it right out. He said, he said, buddy, I knew your father and you are not him. I served your father through his time of crisis And I watched him be restored by God above. And you did not listen to the lessons that you should have listened to. And you've walked away from God. You willingly chose to set yourself against the hand of the living God. This is kind of a scary thing. You know, in in past I've preached sermons like this about this similar thing and, and, and I've been ridiculed by church members because I, I dared to say to be careful. To be careful when you place yourself in front of the living God and his kingdom. People oftentimes will make fun of me and say, well, how can you possibly say that? I have seen it happen time and time again. I've seen individuals that have stood in the way of God's plans. And let me tell you something. God's plan will not be, will not be derailed by any power of man or angel. No demon or devil or Satan himself can disrupt the plan of God. We, if we stand in front of God's will and we choose not to be a part of it, we are just setting ourselves up for disaster. We're we're just inviting 
our doom. That's where we are. That's the situation that we're in. And that's something that we need to be careful about. There was one church I served in several years ago, many, many years ago, the beginning of our ministry. It's a church that had, it did not have vacation Bible school on a regular basis. When Sandy and I first got there, we, we, um, we came in, we helped to build up the, the children's ministry, the youth ministry. We started doing vacation Bible school, and we were moving along real well. But there was individuals that had a different agenda in that church. They were, they were not happy with the changes that were happening. And while Sandy and I were on vacation for the first vacation we had taken in three years, we were visiting family and trying to get ready for the summer and the work that we had to do. We got a phone call saying that the individuals that, want, that, that were tasked with, with running that particular vacation Bible school, was um, uh, they weren't going to do it. They, just, they didn't feel like they had the energy or the ability to make it happen. So we got back. We tried to convince them otherwise. They didn't do it. About a year or so later, Sandy and I moved on to another church. And to this day, that church is not really alive. You have to know that God's kingdom is going to go forward. Now, I'm not saying that if we don't do vacation Bible school, we're done. What I'm saying is you have individuals within the church that feel like that they know better than God. And when they make these statements and they say, I'm not going to do what God has told me to do, then they're setting themselves against God. And it's, it's a dangerous place to be. I have been in God's way in the past. And when that's happened, God has disciplined me mightily. And I can tell you as somebody that has gone through some of the discipline that God has given, it's not a fun time. And I would not recommend it to anyone. Now, that being said, I'm not saying that any trouble or problem you might be having in your life is a direct result of, of, of um, uh, discipline, but you have to know that God is not above chastising his own. We see that here, the time has come. God is no longer patient. He is done dealing with Babylon, and he is about to make an example of them. Verse 25, you see the, the, the expression uh, that was written on the wall. Everybody knows that. Meeny, meeny, tico, you farson. In the New American Standard, I know in the, uh, some of the other translations, it just has parson in the final uh, word phrase there, but um, the Aramaic is pretty clear. And this, these are Aramaic words. Uh, meeny is a word that literally means um, uh, numbered. We see tiko is a word that means weighed and parson means divided. But the euphorson or the euparson part of there means divided up and given away. Now, even though these are Aramaic words, the meaning of them is unclear because they're just single words and they're out of context. It requires somebody like a speaker, a spokesman, spokesman of God to be able to bring this information out. So we see that in the term meeny, meeny, tiko, you farson. This is the interpretation Daniel says in verse 26. He says, meeny, God has numbered your kingdom and put it to an end. We know in ancient Hebrew and in Greek, they did not have exclamation points and they did not have um, uh, punctuation marks. The way that you accentuated things was to do it through repetition. By repeating this, he was saying that this was very important. That your kingdom has been numbered. 
God is the one that's numbered your kingdom and has put it to an end. The word tikal, which means to be weighed, it says you've been weighed on the balances, the scales, and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Wow. That's pretty powerful. It's pretty powerful when you look at those words and you think, well, it's a good thing I'm not a Babylonian king right about now, right? Well, we ask ourselves, are we setting ourselves up as king? Are we putting ourselves in a position of authority above God? Are we stepping on God's toes, if you will, when he wants ministry to be accomplished? You know, I see the enemy moving in a mighty way. This virus that, that I'm sure the enemy has engineered and has put forth in the world has taken center stage away from God. And we have whole congregations that are acting in ways they never would before. You have individuals that are trying to figure out when the end of the world is going to happen. And the reality is we don't know. But when it does, we need to be ready for it. Which means since we don't know when it's going to happen, we need to be ready today. We've got entire churches that are probably going to close in the next several months, if not the next couple of years. But that doesn't mean that God's word is not going to go forward. It doesn't mean that his kingdom is at an end. It just means that there are those people that are not in line with his will and are refusing to bow their prideful heart to a holy God, and he will steamroll them, just as he did to this particular king. The king brought it out, gave the... Uh, prizes, if you will, to Belshazzar, Belteshazzar, which is Daniel. And I'm sure Daniel's thinking to himself, why well, don't even know why you're bothering? I mean, you're not even going to have time to announce this to the whole kingdom. This whole idea of me being the third ruler, it's, it's meaningless. It's meaningless because in a couple hours, you're going to be dead. And I'm sure Daniel was thinking in a couple hours, I'm going to be dead too. But there's also something else that's happening. A lot of people have asked, well, why in the world did the king do this? Was it because of a matter of pride? I mean, he literally just told the king, you're dead. You're done. You're over with. You're not coming back. I mean, the, the normal response for the humans would be to, to basically destroy the messenger, right? Um, it's not the message that upsets me, it's the messenger. And so um, it's obvious that a lot of times that happens in situations where a bad message is delivered to us. We get angry at the messenger. Why did not the king do that in this situation? I, don't, I can't speak for Belshazzar. I don't know what's going through his mind. I suspect that the king carried this on because he was thinking, in his, and this is just me supposing, this is not scriptural, this is just me thinking this. It's my opinion that Belshazzar was doing this to Daniel by saying basically, if I'm going down, you're going down with me. If this God whom you serve, that you are so connected to, that um, uh, elevated, has tore down my father and then elevated him back up uh, in that way, if he's going to bring me down, he's bringing you down too because you're now third ruler. You're part of this whole judgment. Almost as though you're a holy one, can you do something to make this happen, make this not happen because you're so connected to God. That's kind of my, my thought on that. I really think that this is going through the back of the mind of, Bel, um, of Belshazzar. Either way, he now had that authority. He was the third ruler in the kingdom. And then verse 30 and 31 happens. It's almost like a separate little section, just three little, um, just two little verses. It says, that same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about age 62. That's where we are. We end the chapter, and we have to ask ourselves now, what does this mean for us? 
How can we take this? I tell you, you know, the reality of this, you need to read this chapter three or four more times. Read those other passages that I encourage you to at the beginning of the message. Try to see what God is trying to say to you through this passage because there is so much that we can talk about. But we need to remember that not all announcements of doom stand. There are many times that God in heaven pronounced a doom-like judgment on a people and when they repented, he pulled back that judgment. I think back at the town of Nineveh when Jonah went to that town that was slated to be destroyed. I think of the town of Sodom and Gomorrah, two towns actually, slated also for destruction unless they had some folks in there that was found righteous. If there were just 10 people, the towns would have been spared. You know, God is not always about uh, casting these dooms and judgments directly without some warning, without some way past this. The king had misused and abused the name of God when he pulled those pieces out of the museum and showed such a disregard to the things that belonged to God that his kingdom was going to be destroyed. Now, we don't worship in a temple. Does that mean that if I accidentally break a chair in the table, if I accidentally destroy, uh, or I'm sorry, if I break a, if I break a chair in the, in, the, in the sanctuary, or if I accidentally uh, spill a cup of coffee and, on the carpet, oh, heaven forbid, that, that we're now going to suffer the judgment and doom of God? No, that's not the case. That's not what we're saying here. Because we know from the New Testament that we are the temple of the living God. Paul talks about that very clearly. If, and think about this. If God did not view, take the, take, view lightly the misuse of his own vessels from his temple, how much more do you think that he would be upset at the abuse of the true temple, which is us? How do we misuse the items of the temple? It's not on whether or not we spill a cup of coffee or we break a chair. It's how we treat each other. It's how we interact with each other. Jesus said that the, the world will know his disciples by the love we show one another. You know, this is something I think is really important. I don't think that God will be very casual about the abuse that we see in church today. And I think that any time that we destroy or abuse or try to tear down someone else in the building, we are setting ourselves up for judgment and disaster. And we need to be very, very careful. We don't need to wait for the handwriting on the wall here. Because once that is on the wall, we're done. There's no redemption. I think that it's important that we instead turn our mind and our hearts to the hand that wrote on the ground. It's my belief that the same hand that wrote on the wall, the words of judgment to Nebuchadnezzar, was the same hand that crouched in the dirt attached to Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, on that day when the woman was brought, that was caught in the act of adultery, Clearly a sinner. Clearly an in person who broke the commandments directly. 
And Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dirt words that we will never know this side of glory. And when he was done, all of the accusers of that woman were gone except Jesus. There is still time for mercy and forgiveness for us. Now some of us may be sitting here saying, I am that woman who was brought and caught and brought to Jesus. I am that sinner who has never yet bowed my heart to a holy God. Some of you may be the ones that say, I'm the one that was standing around the edge with a rock in my hand. Whatever position you hold in that story, you need to know that there's forgiveness and healing for both of them. God is here to take the stones out of your hands, drop them on the ground, and give you an opportunity for healing and forgiveness. He's also here to let those of you that um, know that you deserve to be stoned. Know that you, if you know that you deserve the judgment of the living God, he's here to say that forgiveness is within your grasp. He's willing to forgive you if you're willing to repent. That's where salvation comes so if you don't know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior, my encouragement to you is to not leave here today without getting your heart right. If you know Him and know Him well, you need to ask yourself, where are you in that story? Are you the disciples sitting on the, on the, on the side praying about this? Are you the ones holding the rock around that sinner? Or are you the sinner in the center of that circle? Whoever you are, God has an answer for you today. Please do not wait for the writing on the wall to actually materialize. Because once that happens, judgment is done. Let us take care of this before it happens. We have an opportunity in a few minutes. We're going to play some music. And for those of you that are watching online, you need to know that uh, when the music is done, our service will be over. We'll be rolling into our business meeting. For the rest of you guys, um, the altar is going to be open for as long as you need it. I'm going to be there not to receive sinners, but as a sinner that needs a touch from my Father. And I encourage you to join me. If you're needing healing of your heart, your soul, your mind, your body, if you're needing to ask forgiveness of somebody in this room, if you're needing to ask forgiveness of God, if you're needing a touch from Him this morning, the altar is open. I can tell you now, this is a, the Swiss Army knife of, of altars. Anything and everything you can you need that's at, from the hand of God can be found in this altar. And I encourage you to come down front. Take advantage of our time while you have it to get your heart right with God because you don't want to stand in front of Him when His kingdom begins to really move. Let's go ahead and pray and, and we'll close out our service. Dearly Father, we thank you so much for what you've done. Lord, I know it's a hard message. It's a hard message for me to receive. It's even harder for us for me to deliver it. But Father, I know that your hand is moving through us. I can see it moving in the congregation, Father. I just ask that you'll prick our hearts, that you'll cut our conscience to its core, that you will give us the opportunity to seek you in a way that we've, that we've not done yet. Father, I ask that you'll allow us as a congregation to make sure we're in the right path. The path that's being led by you, not the path that's, being, that's trying to block you. That we might see your kingdom magnified through the ministry of First Baptist Kenai as we seek to honor and serve the community you've called us to minister to. 
Father, there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that's never accepted you as their Savior. There's anyone listening online that's watching this message. Father, I ask that you will not let them sleep tonight without getting their heart right with you. Father, you said in your word, if we're faithful to beg forgiveness, to repent, that you are faithful to forgive. Father, we know that your forgiveness is so easy to obtain, even though we feel we're unworthy. Lord, we ask that you give us the strength to receive what you have to offer and the discernment and wisdom to follow you in the direction you've called us to. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We put this service in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Let's go ahead and stand. The altar's open. And if we'll push space bar, we'll begin with our final song.